Hi, I'm Tim. This is We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit. I think one of the best ways for each of us to grow is by learning from each other. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Caleb Gardner. Uh, Caleb is a husband, a father, a son. He's the founding partner of 18 Coffees, a strategy and innovation firm uh, based here in Chicago. During the second Obama administration, uh, you were the lead digital strategist for uh, President Obama's political advocacy group, is what it's called, right? OFA, Organizing for Action. Yep, that's right. Gotcha. And I mentioned that because um, I definitely think what we like do professionally for a living is an important part of our identity. I don't think it is our identity, though. But I know so much of your life and your passion is kind of being a active citizen and really trying to affect change in the world. And I do get the impression that your opportunity to work for the Obama administration definitely contributed to your mission there. So I, I do want to mention that because I, well, and I mean, that's a big deal. You were basically running Obama's Twitter account, right? Yeah. And yeah, I agree. It, it definitely informs um, how I look at life in terms of active participation in, in citizenship. I mean, how could it not? It was just such a formative time in my kind of personal professional life. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, and obviously if you're wherever you sit in the political spectrum, I think working for a president is, is a pretty big deal. And some would argue that, you know, Obama definitely made some huge changes. So even bigger deal. Nowadays, you, uh, you're running 18 Coffees, um, which I do want to talk about. You have a family, you have three children. Um, and I do like that phrase, active citizen. I, I do feel like you're a very active citizen. And I want to talk about that. Um, we've known each other for quite some years. I, <laughs> I love that you and I have this ongoing joke about how you enjoy fall and I enjoy summer. And so whenever the weather changes, we just kind of poke each other on some <laughs> social media channel about like, you know, haha, it's That's my right. season, not yours. <laughs> I think about it every single time I complain about how hot it is. <laughs> it's funny. Cause like, I did think about that when I was thinking that I should interview you for, for this podcast. And so when I was doing some research, um, I think I was poking around Facebook, but I found some posts. I think it was you calling me out about fall, but it was it was about eight years ago. So we've had that going for quite some time now. <laughs> oh my God. That's really funny. Yeah, it is a bit of a really long running joke. But yeah, we've known each other better part of a decade, I feel like now. Yeah, I I don't know how I feel about that. I, I mean, I'm glad I've known <laughs> you for that amount of time. But when I'm able to say that now about relationships, it, it kind of scares me. Um, I think I... I do have issues with just every year growing older. And so when I'm able to say I've known someone for the better part of a decade, it, it does make me stop and think. Oh, yeah, I've got existential crisis about uh, growing old as well. So right there with you. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Because it's, it's the one thing you can't like stop. You cannot. I joke that I hope like I'm really happy that we have scientists working on really, really important things like cancer being cured and other diseases. But I do kind of hope there's somebody working on something like slowing down time, whatever that means. But like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I hope there's someone thinking about this beyond us. Yeah, probably closest is a extension of life, right? But it's yeah. a time's our most precious resource. It's the one resource that is not renewable. I think about that so much nowadays. I really do. It's it's the one thing. 
Yeah, they. You, I know. You, I I've read so many different articles and stuff about how you know money. Yeah, you can get more money. Everything you can get more of, but like you said, time you can't. And and again, it's like you can think about that and you can accept that and you can do your best to live in the moment. But at the same time, like you cannot change the fact that you cannot get more time. Like it's, I I, I guess it's maybe I'm taking a negative view of this, but it, it can be so frustrating sometimes in my mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a hard time with it because I, my mindset is always in the future. Like, I don't know if you've ever done any of the Gallup strengths finders kind of, uh, assessments, but one of my top ones was futuristic, which just means like, I'm, I'm, I have a really hard time being in the present. My mind is always about like what's coming next. Um, and what I find is if, if I linger too much thinking about what's coming next, I actually don't enjoy the moment and I don't you know, everything from not enjoying where what I've accomplished professionally to not enjoying like my time with my kids to, you know, like everything across the spectrum. I like am so focused on the future time kind of passes me by. Yeah, that's I know what you mean. And that's that's got to be frustrating for for you, I imagine, because like you are someone who's so you're so like we talked about, you're so cognizant of time being a, a valuable resource. But then if you're naturally like your mind thinks in a, a futuristic way, I wonder if does that ever get like you're battling between yourself. Like, no, think about now. Well, no, what about the future? Yeah, absolutely. I find that being content with the present has to be like a practice for me in order to do it well. I love that phrase, being content with the present. I feel like the word content is so often a negative connotation, but being content with the present. I'm like writing that down right now. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways that I've done it, um, or at least not tried, tried to make it a habit is, um, like with the gratitude practice at the end of the day to like close out my day and really like reflect on what happened. Um, even if it's just for a few minutes, something that I've been trying to integrate into, uh, my life as a way to kind of close the door on my work day and really like be present with my family at the end of the day. Um, just mentally being able to shift gears like that, I found to be really helpful. I love that. That's a great idea. I've really started to appreciate gratitude more just as an act. Um, I love the idea of doing it at the end of the day. I, I also try and just like throughout my professional life or just personal life, if I feel like someone has helped me or someone has, whether it's, you know, once today, or I realized over the past three months, like trying to like proactively actually show them a sign of gratitude. Normally it's just a simple thank you, but thinking about how, what are other ways I could actually express that gratitude? Cause it, you know, it might sound selfish, but it really does make you feel good in like a good way. Like I love that feeling of not only helping people, but then once they've helped me, like letting them know, um, cause I know how that feels when someone expresses gratitude to me. So I love that, that you do that every day. Yeah. I mean, I try to, I, I wouldn't say I have a hundred percent, um, you know, success rate, but depends on how crazy the day ends, I think. But, um, I have found it to be helpful in terms of a, a ritual that, that helps me, helps me be more content with what happened this day and not worried about all the things that I didn't get done, which is where my mind would naturally go. Oh, I love that. My mind always goes there. So we have we have known each other a while. I don't remember when, but it was a, a while back. And I don't remember if we were having drinks or I, I don't really know where we were. But we were talking about the TV show Friday Night Lights. It was probably when I had 
watched it years ago and became obsessed with it. And I remember you remarked something along the lines of you, you couldn't watch it or you didn't want to watch it because it was too real and kind of too close to home. I was really mm-hmm. curious what you meant by that. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in uh, that culture. I mean, I, uh, Friday Night Lights is based in Texas. I grew up in Oklahoma, like 30 miles from the border of Texas. So culturally, it you know, it's basically the same thing. Um, and I remember I watched like one episode with my wife and everything from the accents to how the home life was portrayed to even the, the grandma on there, I swear to God, it might be my grandma's doppelganger. I was like, that that is my grandma. Like, that's crazy. Um, so I, I was just like, I can't do this. It's just too, it's too real. Like, it feels like too much of a representation of something that I know. And I, you know, for lots of reasons, have kind of a varied um, sordid history with where I grew up. And so it just, it, it triggers me in all the, you know, emotionally unhealthy ways that I did not want to be triggered while watching it. Yeah. And that's the part that I definitely intrigued me was, um, cause I think you had mentioned something along those lines. Um, especially your, I think you mentioned your grandma, but mm-hmm. this idea that this show was maybe in some ways so successful in portraying the environment that it was trying to portray, um, you know, even though it was fiction, um, that it was so successful that you almost had to turn it off because it was so, mirroring what you knew but at the same time what you knew was something you didn't want to revisit um that's the part that struck me was i was curious like not how bad were things but like what what was so turning off from what was being portrayed there that that you just didn't want to revisit that like was it just old memories and kind of a a childhood you were trying to escape or something else yeah, kind of the the latter. I mean, I would say that from a very early age, I felt a strong cultural dissonance with the environment that I grew up in. Um, I was a you know a pretty intellectual kid. I was artsy. I was um, you know I was probably the only person that brought my book of Walt Whitman Walt Whitman poems to Bible camp. Like that, that, that was the, a great example of like, oh, this is not like, this is not a uh, culture that I fit in. Um, and so I, I wouldn't even say it's pointing to one specific thing. It's more that I just felt uneasy in a culture that put a big priority on things like, uh, sports, which Friday night lights, obviously, uh, you know, represents pretty strongly, um, puts a big priority on things like machismo and um, driving big trucks, uh, which I always, you know, me and a couple friends would always joke is compensating for other things. Um, You know, (laughs) like there's just, (laughs) there's just not to mention the obvious political dissonance. I mean, you've already talked about how I worked for Obama. Let's just say that the subject matter of me working for Obama when I, uh, when I would go back home to visit my family was a very delicate one because even culturally and politically, um, you know, that was a place I differed from my family. So, so I wouldn't even say it's a one, one thing or one person. It's just kind of a general sense of I'm ready to go explore the world beyond this culture that I felt from like a very early age. 
how early of an age was that? Like, that's very um, amazing to me that you so early on were able to sort of understand your identity. I'm curious how how young you were. You know, I can't even pinpoint it. I mean, as as young as uh, probably like 10, 11. I mean, when I started really being conscious of social norms, when I started paying attention to media and, you know, watching movies and television shows and going, oh, you know, this is how people in the rest of the world live um, and starting really like that really clicking for me. Um, so I, I'm not sure if I can pinpoint exactly, but some sometime around, you know, when kids start to be really socially conscious. That's amazing. I mean, my son's just turned nine. I believe your oldest is, is 10. That's uh, right. Yeah. So I'm just thinking like, you know, I, I don't, I think we live in pretty good environments, but I guess that's all subjective. But um, I, I wonder, you know, like, are they having similar thoughts? Like they're, or, or at least they're so aware of what you were aware of at that age. Now that I have a child that's almost that age, I'm thinking, wow, they're, I still feel like that's so young, but I guess, I mean, you're almost 10 years old. That's, that's not that young. Yeah. I mean, I, I see my, um, uh, myself reflected in my 10 year old's behavior all the time to to ways that freak me out. <laughs> um, and, and you got to remember that, like, uh, I think I'm also just very conscious of my kids are growing up in a very different socioeconomic like situation than I grew up in. Like my, my parents were working class parents. We were, you know, for the large part of my life, kind of living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I grew up for a big majority of my childhood in a trailer park. I mean, like that, that's the environment that I grew up in. And so seeing different kinds of um, cultures represented in media became a really significant part of how I saw the world and how I wanted to, you know, what I wanted to craft for myself and, and my family once I had them. It's amazing the role that media played in your your life from an early age, like almost giving you a window into the world beyond the one that you were sort of uncomfortable in. That's right. Yeah. In in ways that I find still affect my relationship with media. Like I, I think that because I tend to be really futuristic and, and um, uh, you know, thinking about what could be and what potential is, I find that that can really easy, easily devolve into fantasizing. And for a long time, fantasizing through media was my escape for, for a lot of the reasons that we just talked about. And so now I find like it's really easy for me to kind of delve into that fantasizing and escapism um, as opposed to kind of dealing with the reality of what's right in front of me. And that that's that's kind of the really negative side of not being content with where you are right now. I wonder how much of your, you know, what you've kind of identified over the years as your your futuristic tendency, I wonder how much of that came from kind of that that early age of realizing this is not the present wasn't where you wanted to be you wanted to be somewhere else and i imagine and maybe in your mind that was in the future and so you started maybe thinking that way yeah very possible i've thought that exact thing so when you're you know growing up and um kind of becoming self-aware that you know like you said you might not jive with with the culture and you you see a world out there that you want to maybe go explore 
while you're still there though, was there, did you feel like alone or was like, was there someone that you kind of admired that was kind of a strong person that you looked up to and, you know, maybe they were your guide or did you kind of feel like I just need to go find that person outside this world? I would say that I, hmm, good question. I, I think that I had a group, a cohort of close friends um, especially uh, someone that I knew since third grade where I was, we were basically best friends all through high school um, that where we kind of saw, uh, you know, the world similarly and kind of were able to be in our own kind of friendship bubble and, you know, make fun of the world around us as a way to escape it. Um, <coughs> sorry. I wouldn't say that, um, I wouldn't say there were a lot of adult relationships, like the adult relationships I think I had. I had some good adult relationships, don't get me wrong, but I think they were much more reflective of the culture I was living in um, than necessarily like pushing me beyond it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. That's great that you had, you know, that one one good friend for that long period of time to like kind of, I imagine, get you through it. Or I mean, I mean definitely things are so much more amazing and you're able to get through it in my opinion when you have at least some other person supporting you so i imagine that was a big deal yeah it was and and uh, no i forgot what i was gonna say must not have been that important (laughs) that happens to me all the time don't feel bad (laughs) you know you used to uh, have a, a blog that you you wrote pretty prolifically on, um, and I always enjoyed it because, especially at that time, um, you know, years ago, I was definitely very interested in the technology space and the technology scene here in Chicago. So I read a lot of that stuff. But you always wrote very, just I mean, more life, you know, more about life, more about your family, more about your history, more about your children, and just your take on life. And I always was very drawn to that. Um, and I remember it was probably over five years ago, you had a a post that, um, shared a little bit about your biological father. Like you, it turns out, um, had never met him and you were actually ready to meet him and you decided to, to share this. Um, and I remember, you know, you had this post first that kind of explained, like why you hadn't met your father. Um, and you, let me, I'm going to read part of what you wrote here because your words are, are fantastic. You wrote, call it a small act of bravery. I call it the much anticipated burden releasing God forsaken truth. My father is a murderer. My father is insane and I am his son. Nice to meet you. And <laughs> when I read that, I thought, this this is not a small act of bravery. This is a large act of bravery. I don't, there are, I think we all have things that for so many reasons, society probably being the number one, that we are just not comfortable sharing. We feel like we're going to be weak. We're going to be looked down upon. Um, and you, you are someone who has a, a pretty sizable community. You've built up quite the community of of folks, of friends, of, of professional colleagues over the years. So when you wrote that, lots of people read that. I'm really curious, um, what, why did you feel all of a sudden that you were ready to tell the world the story about you and your father? 
Good question. I mean, I think that I had been processing my relationship with my father for many years. Um, I don't think that'll surprise you. Like it took years of conversations with my family who really are not the most emotionally available people uh, as a cohort. <laughs> I'd say that they are um, tend to avoid the kinds of hard conversations that um, that it would take to really process that fully. And so it took a lot of kind of poking and prodding and and asking very specific questions to really get the whole context because a lot of what happened in my father's story happened when I was two, three, four years old. So not things that I actually remember. And so it took a lot of processing both with my family and with counseling about what what does this mean for me? What does it mean for my identity? What does it mean for my own biology to kind of carry that physically around with me, knowing that schizophrenia, which my father suffers from, is actually a biologically inherited trait. Like, what does that mean for me? What does it mean for my kids? Um, So it took many years to process that before I actually felt ready to put kind of a face to a name because what had happened was my my father that incident where he actually killed his father in a kind of schizophrenic rage happened when I was I believe three years old um and then my he got put away in, in an institution and my entire family kind of pretended like he didn't exist for many many years again until I started kind of asking tough questions and really trying to get to the bottom of what actually happened. And so he was physically removed from me my entire childhood in a place that I didn't even really know where he was until I, I started asking around. And so once I once I had kind of processed um, what had happened uh, and, and my relationship with him and tried to somewhat mentally separate from uh, for myself, him as a person from from the disease that caused him to do this very terrible thing um, and tried to have some distance between those two things in a way that the people in my life who lived through that really couldn't do. Um, you know, then I felt a little bit more ready to kind of bite the bullet. And it had, it had really been cu- a long time coming um, in terms of actually meeting him. You know, like by the time, by the time I met him, I believe my son was the age that he that I would have been when he came out of my life. Um, and so that felt like a significant point. So that's really why I decided one weekend to really drive down to Oklahoma and just in some ways get it over with, like just say, okay, let's just let's do this. It's been a long time coming. Why I decided to write about it is writing has always for you know most of my life been ways that I've processed things um and uh, the blog that you mentioned was was a way that I had been processing especially my relationship with my son um when he was born for many years because you know just trying to trying to come to grips with what do I want masculinity and you know growing up to be a boy in America to be for my son, knowing that I had a kind of contentious relationship with my childhood and what masculinity was in that culture was really why I started writing publicly about it and having dialogues with other people that were thinking about that kind of thing. And so my own relationship with my father was a natural part of that story. And so writing about that and publishing about it and and being honest about it felt like a natural next step.
Yeah, you mentioned you referenced you're going to meet him, and you did write another post on your blog about that. And that was, I'm so curious, where did you find the strength to drive down there? And, and the actually, I mean, you know, that's not a short drive from Chicago. I'm sure there were, you know, before you thought you were going to go and then you're ready and then you're driving. There's a lot of time leading up to the moment you're going to meet him for the first time. There's so much time there to turn around and say, actually, no, I can't do this. What, where did you find the strength to, to actually go through with it? Good question. I mean, I don't know that I have a good answer to that other than that I felt like it was time. Um, you know, it had been something like um, uh, 30 years and I felt like I, for my own children's sake, I could not continue to kind of pretend like he didn't exist and not get a sense of, you know, who he is, what is his health history? Like, what do I, you know, how do I get in contact with him? You know, like uh, that I couldn't at least create a box for him in my life and put him in that box instead of pretending like he didn't exist altogether. And you, you mentioned that schizophrenia, I didn't know this, is biologically inherited. That that would just throw me for a huge loop of fear of, oh my gosh, you know, do I need to worry about this? Do Like you said, do my sons need to worry about this? Were, were you very worried all of a sudden when you found that out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as a parent, you worry about everything, right? Especially when you first become a parent. Um, and so I did a, a lot of research and a lot of processing with people who are, you know, subject matter experts about um, what that meant for me and my my children, and actually talked to other people who also had schizophrenia in their family, um, and kind of processed it with them. And you know, <clears throat> it's not something that I, ever really goes away in terms of uh, being in the back of my mind, especially as my kids get older. But I do know kind of what to look for. And I know what the percentage is in terms of likelihood of that being inherited um, actually is. And it's, it's actually relatively low. Um, obviously, me being, um, uh, it actually usually manifests in, in the teenage years, um, or like early adulthood. So, you know, for me, obviously way beyond that, but for me now it's like watching my kids as my kids start to age into that and, and looking for signs. So it's, it's, it's going to be a present worry for sure uh, until they get into early adulthood. Wow. That's, I can't imagine that. Um, that's amazing though. And that's great that you've done so much research and prep work and kind of so that you can think about this and not have it be uh, something sitting in the back of your mind, you know, generating fear. It's something you kind of can confront head on. Yeah. I mean, we don't have any other choice. That's true. I still can't. I'm, I'm just thinking about that drive to see your, your father. Um, I just think about some long drives I've been on and just, especially if you're alone, you know, it's either the radio, you're listening to podcasts or you're just turning off the radio and listening to your mind. Um, and I assume you were driving through cornfields because that's what so much of the middle of America is. <laughs> right. Um, I think my mind would have just been going off off the rails. Um, I I don't know if I would have turned around or if I just would have stopped at a gas station, so I wasn't continuing to head in that direction. Um, when you when you got there and you you know you did 
find the strength to actually get there. Um, so you're ready to meet him. Uh, what was going through your mind? Um, good question. I mean, uh, I don't, I honestly think I was just a little bit like deer in the headlights. So I don't know that uh, anything formal was going through my mind. I do think that on the drive, obviously a lot of things were going through my mind. Um, and I think the drive actually helped. I mean, I think I, I find long drives, especially by myself, pretty cathartic just in terms of, you know, being alone, listening to, you know, seeing the view, listening to music. Like I don't, I don't mind that. So I feel like that actually helped me kind of center and be prepared for it. But yeah, by the time I got there and they're like, you know, taking away my valuables and, and anything that could be used as a weapon and going through a metal detector and putting me in a visitor's room so that they can bring him out. Like, I think I was really just like deer in the headlights. Oh, I imagine talking about the drive being cathartic. I've actually recently come into the same realization. I, I never enjoyed driving, especially by myself, but long distances. Um, but this year, um, getting divorced and now, you know, my children, I see a certain part of the time, uh, they're out in the suburbs of Chicago and I'm still in the city. So now once or twice a week, I'm actually driving and you're from the area, uh, you know, that going a few miles can take more than a few minutes. Um, no kidding. Yeah. So I end up now having a couple times a week, long drives, uh, that are not very scenic. They're, they're in Chicago traffic, but you're absolutely right about the cathartic part of it. Like I actually have noticed now, sometimes I look forward to sitting in traffic for an hour and a half and listening to a podcast or I love singing along with the music, especially when I'm alone. I'm just, I'm just singing as loud as I can. Um, you're right. It's, it's so cathartic. It, I never thought in my life that I would be saying I'm looking forward to an hour and a half drive. Yeah, I really, I mean, in traffic obviously brings its own kind of stresses, but on a long drive through the cornfields, you know, like it's, it's, it's just, it can be relaxing. Um, I also sing at the top of my lungs, by the way, which is, which is really fun. Isn't it? There's really no better feeling. I really, really, some, I guess the best for me, of course, is in the summer with the windows down, singing at the top of my lungs. <laughs> but then I, I put the window up at the light, you know, so that the person on the left can't hear me. You and summer, just like always good ways to spin what's happening in the summer. <laughs> I mean, I, hey, I've been singing all winter long too, but uh, I would prefer to be singing in the summer with the windows down for sure. <laughs> I just feel like there are very few like socially acceptable places to sing at the top of your lungs. And so like in the privacy of your own car, we've all done that. You're right. There are few socially acceptable places. And maybe that's what we need to fix is we need to just make it socially acceptable to be walking down the street singing and not get looks. That's right. I, um, you know, Cindy Williams, we both know Cindy Williams. Um, I, she came on this podcast a little bit ago and one of the big things we talked about was the boundaries she set with her family uh, around her story and how she felt it was necessary to set boundaries with them so that she was able to to really be who she wanted to be and let her story be the story she wanted it to be. I'm curious when I started thinking about you and your, you know, with your father and, and with your the kind of the, the history we've talked about today in, in your childhood and your past, 
Have you had to set any boundaries with your family? Um, I feel like I am. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, we we don't have to set very many boundaries, mostly because we have geographical boundaries. Like living in Chicago, we are so far removed from most of our most of my family that we only see them a few times a year, and so we don't have a lot of the like you know, emotional boundary setting that someone who sees their family, you know, once a month would have to think about, I think. uh, So I don't, I don't think that we usually, you know, when we're down there in Oklahoma or my parents are up here, um, you know, it's so fast and furious in terms of the relatives we're trying to see in terms of the time we're trying to get them to spend with our kids. Like we don't, we don't really go there really in terms of, um, any kind of emotional depth for better or for worse, you know, like I, I already talked about how, you know, things about my own father, um, you know, never came up now with us only seeing our family a few times a year. Um, it definitely doesn't come up. Um, nothing kind of that would kind of breach that sacred time or make that sacred time we have together, um, seem less fun really kind of, uh, comes up. So I would say that, um, you know, for the most part, our, uh, our relationship with my, me and my wife's relationship with my parents and the rest of my family is actually, you know, the best we can hope for at this point. Well, that's good to hear. That's great. And I imagine in some ways, maybe the physical boundaries that just naturally occurred might be the the best actually, because they're kind of understood then. And you can't really, Unless, you know, one of the, the two is begging the other one to come back to, you know, them to come to Chicago or you to go to Oklahoma. It's, it's kind of an understood natural boundary. Yeah, I mean, we still talk to them, you know, uh, pretty regularly on the phone, but it's usually about, you know, what are the kids doing, kind of catch up on, you know, my sister and her, her daughter. And, um, you know, there's just there's natural kind of life kind of updates that that direct to the conversation, I would say. Um, I would say that my parents are still very confused about why we chose to move to uh, Chicago and live in such a big city. And every time it come, they come up here, my dad is stressed out by the traffic and, and you know, wonders why, why we are doing this to ourselves. But, you know, different life choices. Yeah. I mean, in your dad's defense, sometimes I wonder why we're doing this to ourselves <laughs> the, the, the traffic is cathartic sometimes for me but other times you know when you talk about you know the 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 time being our most valuable resource i'm like is it really you know if i'm spending that hour in traffic is that a good use of my my time so like, i can <laughs> right. see both sides <laughs> yeah and just for uh listener clarity that would be my stepdad um who for all intents and purposes has been uh my dad for most of my life so when I say my dad, I'm talking about my stepdad. How how um, early on did your stepdad enter into your life? Was it around the time the incident happened, or was it sometime during your childhood that he kind of came into your life and became, you know, the father figure? Yeah, it was very early. I want to say I was four, maybe. Um, so you know, again, for all intents and purposes, he's been my the one who raised me. So he's been my father my whole life. And I. I assume you two get along and, and it's been a great relationship. Um, not always. I, I would say that um, a lot of the cultural things I was talking about uh, earlier that, you know, 
created a lot of dissonance in me. Um, he was representative of a lot of those things in in some ways. And so we butted heads a lot about kind of, you know, life decisions, about priorities, about, you know, uh, especially as I was starting to leave, uh, getting into high school and starting to think about going to college and um, leaving my hometown. And, you know, I think he was one of the biggest advocates for, um, you know, trying to be cautious about spreading my wings too far. Um, but I would say as adults, we definitely have a better understanding. I think I think that's probably true of anyone's relationship with their parents is that, you know, people that were rebellious in teenage years, you kind of see your your parents as adults and peers more so when you get to a certain age. So I'd say everything's, you know, fine now and we get along great, but um, not always when I was a teenager and, and a snotty teenager at that, I will say. I can relate entirely. Sometimes I look back now and I think about how I was with my father in high school. Uh, and in some ways I feel apologetic. I just want to say like, Oh, I'm so sorry that I was that person. <laughs> and then I think Absolutely about the same. Yeah. And then I think about my son and daughter and think, Oh boy, like, is that coming? And how do I, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. My 10 year old already has the like sarcastic wit that I had as a child. And, and some of the things that come out of his mouth, I'm like, you should not be saying that to adults. And I'm like, Oh damn, that was me. I know that was yes. me. Yes. My nine-year-old is doing that already. My my son. And oh my gosh, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, it's it's so tough. Parenting is so tough. Because you think, like so much of my childhood and parenting, I think, you know, looking back, it it wasn't a lot of like, you know, express yourself and it's okay to cry and it's okay to feel. It was like, you know, why are you doing that? Don't do that. So it's like, I want my children to be able to express themselves. I want them to be able to be emotional and to... To, to be them, I don't want to necessarily push that down. But at the same time, like you said, you know, sarcasm or, you know, inappropriate, not inappropriate, but unkind communication toward anyone or things like that. You know, it's like, where do you draw the line? Like, I want you to be you and I want you to explore, but I don't want you to be an asshole. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of, of your, your oldest son, um, you posted on Facebook a couple months ago that he had to choose five things that describe each member of your family. Uh, and for you, his five were, number one, my dad is persistent. Whatever he starts, he finishes. Number two was he cares about everyone, no matter what. Number three was he also has blue eyes. Four, he is tall with glasses. Five, he normally wears jeans. Numbers one and two, I would totally... Well, I agree with all five for the record. Uh, <laughs> but numbers one and two, I think are are dead on. You are a very persistent person. You do care about everyone. And I was curious how you felt about those two things that he said, those top two, that you're persistent and you care about everyone. Did you feel like that was... Like that's, that's who you feel you are? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's great to get feedback from your kids, right? Like they don't ever, they don't often stop and reflect on who their parents are and like write it down and make a list. So I was, I was grateful that he went through that exercise and pretty pleased with the results. I mean, I, I, especially I think as an entrepreneur now, persistency in as the direction is something that you're just constantly questioning like, are we doing the right thing? Are we going in the right direction? Is this becoming anything meaningful? And so to get that feedback, even from a 10-year-old, I think is is helpful when you when everything feels like you're making it up as you go along. 
Um, I would say that uh, the reason he said blue eyes, there's a little bit of a uh, blue eyes versus brown eyes controversy in my household. So my my wife has brown eyes. I have blue eyes. We thought genetically, okay, all my kids are going to have brown eyes. Obviously, like brown eyes are dominant. And as it turns out, two out of my three kids have blue eyes and only one has brown eyes. And my oldest is the one with brown eyes. So he and my wife talk about that a lot. Like we're the we're the brown eyed people against the like three blue eyed people. <laughs> so he was calling you out as having blue eyes. This might not That's have been right. a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's just stating a fact. Like he's in the blue eyed in the blue eyed group, and I'm in the brown eyed group, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. He's saying my dad's persistent. Whatever he finishes or starts, he finishes. He cares about everyone, but watch out. He's part of the blue eyes. <laughs> Maybe. Was this a school assignment he had to do or something? Like you didn't ask him to do this. He did it and brought it home. That's right. Yeah. No, I did not ask him to create a list of things that he thought about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just mentioned it because like, honestly, like I would be a little afraid. Uh, I don't like to to have my son do this. I'm really curious as to what he would say. And like I said, I'm, I'm a little afraid of what five things is a lot. Uh but, but I'm not yeah. going to ask him to do it. But now I kind of hope maybe his teacher does. <laughs> it's just funny that like he came up with things that are really like deep and meaningful. And then it kind of devolved into just like observations. You know, like after a while, kids are just like, I don't know. He's tall. He wears glasses. I, it's funny how that is. I, I noticed that in like just conversation with my kids, like it, same thing. It often start out like that. And then, like you said, eventually they kind of come back down to like kid level and just which is the thing I love the most about children is their ability to just say what it is. Like sometimes it's as obvious as like, yes, my dad has blue eyes. He wears glasses and jeans. But I mean, other times the questions they ask and the things they say are just like, there's no BS. There's no sugarcoating. It's just straight to the point. And I, I love that so much. Oh yeah. Kids will give it to you straight. They'll also give it to strangers on the street straight. So you got, you got to watch out for that. This is true. <laughs> it goes both ways. <laughs> you, so your your son's saying there that you care about everyone no matter what. The one thing I've always admired and noticed about you is that being an active citizen, that desire to create social impact. And, you know, I think about these days, you are an entrepreneur building a business, um, building 18 coffees. Um, you have your family, your wife, your three children. Uh, and you still do want to really create an impact on the world. You want to be an active citizen. But I'm really curious, where do you find the energy to care about the well-being of the rest of the world when you have your business and your family and just life? I mean, life itself. How do you possibly find the the care for the rest of us? Oh, one day at a time, I guess. Um I mean, I think that I'm fortunate that the business that we are in is the business of um, social innovation in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of our clients are nonprofits or, or businesses kind of forward thinking about their impact on society. And so I think I'm I still feel lucky to be able to do the kind of work that makes the world better on a day to day basis. And so it, it's not like I'm I'm doing a job to kind of pay the bills and then kind of squeezing in something that makes me feel good at the end of the day like I know a lot of people are in that in that situation and and always grateful for kind of the time that they give back but I think just um you know philosophically 
why we've been put on the earth, I think, is um, something that I think about a lot. And and there's a quote um, that who I'm going to misattribute. I don't remember who who said it. It might have been Maya Angelou, but I feel like everyone attributes everything to Maya Angelou. Um, uh, something about the pur- the purpose of life is to help others. Um, and I think that's kind of how I've seen uh, my mission in a lot of ways. I, you know, like the work that I stumbled into when I was working for Obama was really serendipitous. You know, it was just kind of right place at the right time and a way to kind of use what I had learned to that point for something that was really meaningful on top of the fact that I was a history major in college and kind of geeking out about being a part of history making was really fun. Um, So, uh, you know, now a few years removed from that, I have a lot of people that are kind of like, oh, you know, to come into me for advice as if I have some magical secret about how to do life in a way that is meaningful and, you know, do work that is meaningful like I did for Obama. And what I always tell them is there was nothing special about me. I just happened to be, you know, in the right place at the right time and in contact with the right people who were doing the kind of work that I wanted to be doing. And, um, you know, anyone can really do that. Like it's not, there's no special formula for changing the world. It's just going out and doing it and being um, persistent, which is a which is a key thing we've been talking about about kind of pursuing the kind of life that you want to lead, um, and so I, I, I think just philosophically, I see active citizenry and the the working of you know someone like me who has so much privilege um, in so many different ways, using that privilege to help others. Um, I just see as a key part of existing. A key part of existing. That's. Man, that's the way it should be, right? Just a key part of existing is helping each other. I love that. It should be. It's not always. And it's hard It's hard on a day-to-day basis, like you said, when you've got a family and you've got all kinds of other things demanding your attention, like even even trying to think beyond your day-to-day and your, um, you know, what you have going on is a, is a day-to-day struggle. And it, it's another thing that kind of takes practice. Yeah, that balancing act. I mean, you know, like we said before, parenting alone, I feel like is the most rewarding thing in the world, but also the the toughest thing. And the, the thing that no one tells you actually just becomes a different form of tougher is I always say as, as soon as you figure out what you're doing and you feel like you've mastered it, you're on to the next level. And now you're back to like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> That's right. Your kid ages out of that stage and now they're in an entirely new stage. Yeah, exactly. The biggest thing, I say this all the time now, but I truly mean it. I, when I was young, I don't know if you felt the same way, but like, I thought my parents were like experts, right? Like, not that they were like gods, but I thought like they knew everything. They knew what they were doing. They, they were not perfect, but they were experts on being parents. Um, Now, I assume they were like me and just completely making this up as they go along. And like, I've just outright like told my son that, you know, like, hey, you know, give me, give me some slack here. Like, we're, we're just making this up as we go along. Um, you know, that's the secret. No one told me. And that just like blew my mind when I became a parent and figured that out. I'm like, wait a second. I thought you just, you know, I don't know, take some training and know all this. And it's like, no, the, the training is like the rest of your life. That's right. Yeah. I think it's really important to show vulnerability to your kids and to like admit when you make mistakes. I think that's something that 
our parents' generation, for whatever reason, wasn't taught how to do. Um, and it's something that I try to do pretty intentionally with my kids. But it's tough. I've actually um, compared parenting and entrepreneurship a lot of times because they both are incredibly tough and so rewarding. Some of the most rewarding things that I've ever done. And I would never recommend them to anyone else. <laughs> that's that's very <laughs> true. And you're, you're absolutely right about the vulnerability thing. That's I think it's so important for our kids to learn that at a young age, especially because I feel like I didn't, like you said, I think it was a generational thing, but it, it is so important. Do you, do you ever feel, and I don't mean this in any way to suggest that you're not an amazing father, but do you ever feel like in some moments that like you're, you're failing or you're going to fail, like as a, as a father, like, do you ever have just that, that moment of doubt? Uh, all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to fail and I'm currently failing and you know, like, or I have failed. I've like my son's 10, I've already royally screwed him up. Yeah. It, 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 it's a thought process that happens a lot. Yeah, I think about that. I think like, why am I, why am I feeling that way? Because like you said, or I, I, we're both trying to do our best. And, and I think we, you know, learning from our past, we want to make our, I think, I guess every parent, every generation wants to make their kids' lives better than maybe, you know, anyone else's before them. Um but yeah, I mean, I feel like that way sometimes too. Like, like you said about them being nine or ten years old already, it's like, oh my goodness, like they're basically little adults. Did I? Are they ready? Oh my gosh, did we teach them the wrong things? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, do am I being patient enough with them? Like, am I giving them enough grace? Am I, am I pushing them in the ways that they need to be pushed? Like, am I giving them too many screens? Like, are they? Am I managing their screen time? Like that's something we constantly are thinking about battling with. That's a tough one that I wasn't ready for because I mean, yeah, we grew up with computers and then getting into the, you know, later in our lives, the iPhones and all that. But like, I mean, these are our children truly are growing up with screens everywhere. Um, and they're just being conditioned to it. So it is definitely something I, I struggle with a lot is like, how do you, like, I don't know if you were the same way, but getting into technology like was for me a large part in, uh, due to the fact that like we had some computer at my house and I was able to screw around on it and, and spend time on it. And that opened doors to ways of thinking that may not have happened had my parents not let me do that. And I think about like, I don't want to close my son off from that or close my daughter off from that. But I also don't want them on a screen for like eight hours a day when they're five and nine years old. Yeah, that's right. I think that there's just so many more types of screens now than there were when we were growing up. Um, and, you know, like we can limit how many TVs we had, which, you know, was a conversation we always had with my my parents growing up. But, you know, now there's a TV in every room. There's a TV in their pockets. There's a TV they can take, you know, wherever they want. Like they can watch anything anywhere. Yeah, it's 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 frustrating. Well, Caleb, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. I have a page full of notes here of amazing nuggets that I've gotten from our conversation. So I hope others listening have too. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. And um, I just want to let you know that we're coming up soon on the shortest day of the year, which means we're then on our, on our way towards summer. 
Hey, as far as I'm concerned, it's 40 degrees. This is like an extended fall. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, leave us a review, and give us some stars. Thanks.